All right, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. This is Preston Nieves coming at you with the Wisdom Factory Literary Society. Um, and today we're going to be discussing a very important topic with a very special guest. Today we have with us Dr. Doyle. Um, he's, uh, can you go ahead and introduce yourself? I am Associate Professor of Political Science at Texas State University. I specialize in uh, international uh, security issues, international ethical issues, and my research is focused on uh, nuclear weapons issues. Mm -hmm. All right, and then also joining us, we have uh, Nicholas Flores, who's a member of the Wisdom Factory, and then also um, Carlos over here, and uh, this is his first time on the podcast, original debut, and today we're going to be discussing uh, the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Um, and for those of you who don't know what that is, this is one of the most important arms control agreements um, that exists right now. That is uh, had the most success in terms of the number of countries signing on to it. And basically, it's an agreement where countries agree to prohibit the spread of nuclear weapons and where various nuclear weapon states agree to take steps towards disarmament. And it's not an accident that we're discussing this because um, next year, the Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference is going to be happening in 2020. It happens every five years. Um, so really the first question, uh, Dr. Doyle, could you go ahead and explain uh, to everyone what this is about and what's going on with this, this review conference and why the Non-Proliferation Treaty has these? Okay, so the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty uh, was the product of the United States, former Soviet Union, Ireland, and a number of other countries who were sufficiently scared by the Cuban Missile Crisis and other sorts of nuclear scares that they decided that the most important thing that they could do would begin to regulate how nuclear weapons would be in the world. So uh, the treaty gets started in the Lyndon Johnson administration uh, and uh, you might find it interesting that Lyndon Johnson appointed a committee and they recommended this course of action. And so it's the Johnson administration that's responsible for the American side of the creation of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, it's signed by 55 members of the United Nations in 1968. Uh, and it comes into force in 1970. One of the provisions of the Non-Proliferation Treaty is that every five years, uh, the states' parties to this treaty will meet to review uh, the progress of the treaty in implementing its goals. There's three main goals of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. One is to prevent the further spread of nuclear weapons. Uh, another goal is to permit states to engage in uh, the pursuit of peaceful nuclear energy programs. Now, of course, this creates a problem because any country with a nuclear energy program could also become a nuclear weapons state. It's the same technology that is used for both. So that means there's a lot of regulation that was agreed to by all these states for how nuclear energy programs would be pursued so that it wouldn't create a, a problem for nuclear proliferation. Uh, third mission is to 
set up conditions to where nuclear disarmament could take place. So uh, the treaty starts off with five recognized nuclear weapon states. These are the United States, former Soviet Union, which is now the Russian Federation, China, Britain, and France. All other states are prohibited by the treaty from having a nuclear weapons program. Uh, so this treaty is now approaching its 50th birthday. And in the 50 years that the treaty has been in force, we've seen almost every country sign and join the treaty. The only countries that are not part of the treaty today are Pakistan, India, Israel, uh, North Korea, which had joined for a while but then left, and then South Sudan. Uh, of those countries, four of them are nuclear-armed states. Uh, so India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea all have nuclear weapons. Uh, so this 2020 review conference is going to pick up where the 2015 review conference left off and try and assess the degree to which the treaty is making progress. And if it's not making progress, then what should be done about it? Mm -hmm. All right. So um, that's a very good explanation. And uh, thank you so much for once again for being on this podcast. And so with that in mind, um, I think the next thing that is worth visiting is um, how we feel about what's going to go on with this, because there's a number of challenges uh, to the non-proliferation treaty that have been identified, not just uh, countries that haven't signed it in general, uh, but also issues like with compliance and adherence to some of the uh, provisions of it. Um, two questions in particular I think that are very important are, you know, how Iran impacts this, uh, but then also the, you know, the impact of the possibility of, of North Korean disarmament. Um, and I think one thing that kind of wraps up those two things together um, is, are, you feel, are we feeling optimistic or pessimistic about um, this conference? Do we think this is something that's going to lead to consensus in the international community um, and be something where we can make forward on, uh, make progress rather on some aspect of the issue? Um, or is, are those chances looking a little bit more bleak because of examples such as India and Pakistan and North Korea um, and a generally a shaky commitment to the non-proliferation treaty by many actors, including some um, who, uh, e e you know, either are or, at once, or once were a part of it? Well, I think the answer to opt the optimism or pessimism question uh, depends on which state actor you're concerned with. If you're concerned with the United States, I would say the United States is fairly optimistic that they're going to be able to see continuation of nuclear nonproliferation. I mean, honestly, uh, if there's any success that the nonproliferation treaty has had, it's been in preventing states from acquiring nuclear weapons. So that's why it's important to realize that the treaty only has to do with the states that belong to it. Now, some might say that, well, India has nuclear weapons, Pakistan, Israel, North Korea, those are all failures. Uh, yeah, they're, they're failures, but uh, we must remember that uh, there's degrees of failure and there's degrees of success. So if you measure... U.S. optimism uh, 
from the standpoint of the Kennedy administration. And the Kennedy administration was afraid that by 1970, there would be 40 to 50 nuclear weapons states. Well, we certainly don't have that many. We have exactly nine nuclear weapon states. And there's been a growth of nuclear weapon states since the treaty was signed and came into force by precisely the number three. So uh, you might think about it in terms of, let's say, scores on a final exam. So everyone wants 100% on a final exam. But let's say you get 95%. Should you consider it a failure? Most people would consider that an A. So just on the non-proliferation side of things, we can award the NPT an A for non-proliferation, granting that there's been some spread of nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, the disarmament mission is a different issue. <clears throat> so can we say there's been success in terms of getting the world to a place where disarmament is almost ready to happen? And the answer to that question is no. So if you're a non-nuclear weapon state that is a neighbor of a nuclear weapon state, arguably you're afraid that if a nuclear war happened, its effects would not just be limited to the two countries having their war, those effects would spill over. Uh, Let me give you some examples. Mexico arguably is afraid of a war that the United States would have with Russia or North Korea or any other nuclear adversary. Uh, They push for nuclear disarmament avidly because they don't want nuclear war to spill over into Mexican territory. That makes perfect sense. If you're a Mexican government official, you're going to think that the NPT deserves a fail on the disarmament mission. And if you're Ireland, you'd have the same opinion, right? Because you're a neighbor of the NATO alliance, and the NATO alliance is nuclear armed. So if there's a nuclear war between Russia and the United States, it's going to spill over into Europe. And the disarmament mission is an utter failure, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I think if you talk to the Americans and the Russians and the Chinese and the British and the French, they would say that certainly the disarmament mission doesn't deserve an A, but they wouldn't say it deserves a fail. They might award it a C grade. Why? Because uh, most country, most nuclear weapon states have sharply reduced the number of nuclear weapons in their arsenal. They have done everything they can to secure their nuclear weapons from theft or uh, other sorts of uh, disasters. And we have uh, a lot of intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance technology that keeps track of what states are doing with nuclear weapons. So there's a lot of information out there. Uh, Doesn't mean security dilemmas have been resolved. Doesn't mean 
that there isn't a chance that we might have nuclear war, but the, but the reigning idea among the nuclear weapon states is that the chances of nuclear war are remote, even if uh, leaders of states express bellicose uh, uh, ideas towards each other, you know, like President Trump calling uh, North Korean President Kim Jong-un a little rocket man. And, a little rocket man. And, uh, and Kim Jong-un returning the favor by calling President Trump a daughter. <laughs> uh, but, but that kind of stuff, you know, it, it's, there's a difference between rhetoric and then what states are actually doing. And so if you pay attention to that, then I think it's a split decision on optimism-pessimism. Let me just say a couple words about Iran and North Korea and to wrap up this part of your question. Uh, I think it's the consensus opinion of the international community that Iran is not doing anything at this point to acquire nuclear weapons. It seems that the Trump administration is the only government that is suspicious of Iran at the moment, with the exception of Israel. Every other country seems to believe that they've got credible evidence that Iran is not pursuing nuclear weapons and that what Iran wants to do is exercise its rights under the NPT to pursue peaceful nuclear energy. And they even went so far as to agree to restraining their uranium enrichment program, which they didn't have to do under the NPT, but restrain their nuclear enrichment program uh, according to the Iran nuclear deal that the Obama administration negotiated. Uh, so this situation is in flux. Uh, my understanding is that Iran would only move towards nuclear weapons if they felt that the Trump administration was putting them in a corner. Uh, we ought, now, on North Korea, we know that North Korea has conducted several nuclear tests within the last decade. They've stopped nuclear testing for the time being. They haven't stopped weapons testing. And currently North Korea is, seems to be bargaining with China and Russia to give them some cover. Uh, and I think that the Trump administration may not be happy to, to realize that they're being confined by North Korea and Russia and China into exactly the same position that the Obama administration, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, and every other administration has been put into. So regardless of what rhetoric you hear from the White House, uh, the United States is in the same box that they've been in for the last several years with respect to North Korea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So, you know, with that being said, before we move on to the next, the next question, uh, I want to hear, um, well, give my own characterization and also hear from some of the other members. So um, I agree with the, the gist of that overall. Like, I definitely think that it's had successes and it's had failures. Um, but my reasoning, I, I think, is a little bit different. And I would say I'm probably slightly more pessimistic. Um, Personally, I think the NPT has been a bit of a mixed bag. I think there's a lot to like about it. There's also a lot to dislike about it. Um, and part of that has to do with the fact that I 
believe the NPT is something that is more akin to uh, a means to an end. Like in my opinion, like I don't see armament or disarmament necessarily as something that's intrinsically good or bad. Um, I see it as a means to an end. That I think the goal is limiting the likelihood and magnitude of conflict between countries. If nuclear armament does that, great. If nuclear disarmament does that, great as well. Um, and uh, but where I will agree with you, Dr. Doyle, is where I definitely think we've made a lot more progress when it comes to the non-proliferation and the disarmament. And I think that that aspect of it has been more promising in terms of of actually achieving successful results because nuclear disarmament is something that personally I have um, a bit of a problem with simply because of the fact you know at the end of the day a treaty is just a piece of paper and that in a nuclear weapons free world there would be an extremely extremely strong incentive um, for countries to violate that because you know as like Bernard Brody uh, talked about in the absolute weapon that you know it'd be easy for a country if it was the only nuclear weapon state uh, to achieve the absolute capability um, now obviously people, um, you know, people would uh, counter that argument by talking about, well, with the proper verification measures, that is something that could be overcome. Um, and I think maybe in certain circumstances, that's the case. Like if you could uninvent nuclear weapons somehow. Um, but the problem, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Doyle, with that um, is that because it allows peaceful nuclear technology that every country that exercises that right is a de facto nuclear breakout state. Um, and that while there are some verification measures in place, that because the treaty has a withdrawal provision, and um, because of the fact that it's such a small step to make, you know, I think it'd be very easy that if a country wanted to use a peaceful nuclear program as a guise for nuclear weapons and wait for everyone to disarm, uh, that they could do that. Um, however, with the non-proliferation aspect, I think that's where there is something to like about this treaty. Um, once again, maybe for different reasoning, but regardless of differences in our reasoning, I think we've come to the same conclusion on the non-proliferation aspect. Because for me, while I don't necessarily believe that nuclear weapons are an intrinsically bad thing, and that because of the deterrent effect, they can sometimes introduce stability, um, that on the flip side, not pursuing nuclear weapons, I think, is a good type of signal typing. Um, that in the in the in in our class, uh, I'm taking a class with Dr. Doyle right now, that's how I got him on the podcast that one of the things that we discuss is a signal typing and how sometimes you know it's theoretically possible that countries could take certain steps to show that they're not interested in a conflict and I think not pursuing nuclear weapons when you don't have them um, is a good way in some circumstances um, and I think you know the international community a lot of world leaders would argue in most circumstances to show that your intentions are not hostile that rather than saying we're gonna arm up and prepare for a first strike or whatever like no we have peaceful intentions so we're gonna forego the weapon weapons, and while the weapons themselves might not be bad, that some of the motives that people suspect uh, for pursuing the weapons um, could be something that caused some issues, and that by not pursuing them, you can make your motives a little bit more clear. Um, so before we get to the next question, um, Nicholas, do you have anything to add? Um, do you agree, disagree with anything that was said? Um, what's your opinion on the NPT? Uh, my opinion is going to be actually on the more pessimistic side, strictly because of self-interest. And also, in terms of the NPT, I just think it's still too early to tell. I do agree that it is a mixed bag, but at the same time, uh, if any nation's cornered and they do have the ability to produce the weapons, or at least the beginning stage of nuclear energy, um, it could be very easy for them to go into the nuclear weapon route. And uh, I would say a, a possible example of this would probably be the uh, Japanese, for instance. Mm -hmm. All right, Carlos, what's your opinion? Hello. Um, well, real quick, I just want to say thank you uh, for having me on here. Um, I am a McCoy business student. Um, I consider y'all the poly science guys, and I'm over here just kind of doing business. So a lot of the terms y'all are using, 
I might need clarified. Um, y'all showed me up the other day eating pancakes. That was awesome. Um, and thanks for coming to that. Um, so I have a question uh, for the doctor specifically. Um, you, you, you use the term states, um, and uh, I can, I, you say Iran and all these other, using them as states, and I, I think of them countries, I guess. Could you maybe define that term a little bit? Sure. In uh, political science, <clears throat> the, the term state uh, is generally taken to refer uh, to a unified government that has responsibility over a citizenry within a, a series of territorial boundaries. So uh, the distinction is drawn between states and nations, where nations are more like peoples that may uh, dwell across different state boundaries. Uh, there's su some such a thing as a nation state where the state and the nation pretty much um, correlate with each other. Okay. Uh, I think in, in, in the kinds of uh, conversations that a person might have outside political science proper, you might find the word country and state be roughly synonymous. Okay. So, uh, but uh, in, in, in our academic discourse, we'll use the word state to refer to this unified actor uh, examples, Iran, United States, Russian Federation, so forth. Okay, thank you. And then I have two more questions real quick. Uh, for the 2020 um, NPT conference that's upcoming, um, I consider myself, uh, or I consider the government in America a Republican form of government. So how would you con how would you say that American taxpayers' interests are being represented properly at the meeting? <clears throat> okay, so I think basically we understand uh, representation in a constitutional republic or democracy like the United States to start from the electoral process. Okay, so if if I as a voter am voting for U.S. Congress, U.S. Senate, United States President, then that's the direct representation relation. And I pay taxes to those people to do things like national security. So those people will be attending the meeting? Well, not the elected officials per se, but if, because you got to realize the United States is a country of, you know, over 300 million people, and the size of the federal government is is mm -hmm. is significant, right? So, uh, within the Department of State, you've got the set. So the president will nominate someone to be Secretary of State. They have to receive the advice and consent of the U.S. Senate. Mm -hmm. That protects the representation relation. Okay, and then they hire people under the president's remit to hmm. do a variety of jobs. So yeah. if you have someone, let's say in the State Department, who is uh, serving as the negotiator for the United States in uh, the United Nations, because uh, the NPT is, a, is an international organization within the United Nations. It's a treaty regime within the United Nations. Okay. So that means that we have uh, representatives from the U.S. State Department who are speaking on behalf 
of the United States in those meetings. So the chain of representation isn't direct, right? It's not like I got to vote for who speaks for us in the NPT meetings, but that representation relation is preserved through the chain of representation. Okay. You you mentioned uh, they serve at the president's remittance? At the president's pleasure, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's that's interesting. Okay, my last question. Um, Near the end of your talk, you mentioned Iran and North Korea. Um, and then you also mentioned signals uh, that you learned in class. Right. Signal typing. Signal yeah. typing. Like the idea so, that by uh, by pursuing or not pursuing exactly, certain types not of weapons, pursuing. you can send a message to other countries about exactly. what you're doing. So the whole idea of not pursuing with Iran, you said that U.S. and Israel are suspicious, but the rest of the world stage isn't. Yeah. So what exactly is Iran doing to the rest of the world stage? What's that? evidence that they're not creating nuclear weapons are is that signaling how are they signaling to the rest of the world that they're quote unquote not creating nuclear weapons yeah yeah and what is it that makes us and israel suspicious okay so <clears throat> international treaties are uh if they're arms control treaties or uh if they're regulatory treaties in any way then that means there has to be uh, an agency either independent of that or closely linked to that, which is the watchdog agency. Okay. Now, for the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, that watchdog agency is the International Atomic Energy Agency. The International Atomic Energy Agency's initials, we typically refer to it as the IAEA. Now, the IAEA is a a group of international experts, both in nuclear physics, in international law, uh, in international security, and their function is to uh, inspect the nuclear facilities of every non-nuclear weapon state in the NPT which is every country in the world that doesn't have nuclear weapons, with the exception of South Sudan, all right? So so that means that the International Atomic Energy Agency has a schedule to visit every one of these countries that has a nuclear energy program, and they have a checklist of things that they're looking for, and when they complete that inspection, they report to the UN Security Council. And when they report to the UN Security Council, they're giving you know, the general findings, but they're also submitting evidence of, of what their findings relate. Uh, of course, a lot of this stuff is highly classified, which means it's not gonna become a matter of public record. So if you and I were to Uh, If we don't have security clearance, if you and I were to Google uh, some of this material, we'd be able to see maybe redacted versions or summaries or things of that nature. Okay. Okay. They have, the IAEA has consistently reported to the UN Security Council that Iran is complying with the Iran nuclear deal. Okay. 
that is convincing to everyone except the United States administration currently and mm. Israel. So it's our administration currently. Yes. Okay. I mean, it was, it was, uh, the Obama administration was absolutely convinced by the IAE reporting. Okay. And, and in <clears throat> fact, if you interview former Obama officials right now, they'd say uh, the Trump administration is making a mistake in terms of accusing Iran of continuing to pursue nuclear weapons. And former Obama administration officials would, would also warn that if the Trump administration doesn't change their view about Iran, that they could end up having a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is creating the very problem that the Iran nuclear deal was intended to prevent by boxing Iran into a corner and making it untenable for them to be nuclear weapon free. All right, now, some may say, well, of course, so former Obama administration officials are all Democrats. We would expect that that's what the Democrats <laughs> would say. And the response to that is that's exactly what former Secretary of Defense James Mattis said, too. Mm-hmm. What exactly did the, the Mattis say? The Mad Dog, he, he's Mad a, Dog Mattis? Mad Dog Mattis. Like he he agreed a, with the Mad idea Dog that Mattis, Iran is complying. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And, okay. And, and well, he also stepped down, right? Yeah, but, but, but in terms of what's different is it in that's terms of political parties. He stepped down over Syria, right? He stepped down over his disagreements with the way the president was handling foreign policy crises like Syria. Like Syria. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the uh, I think the, uh, there's an interesting point that's brought up with Iran about like how the United States uh, seems to have this aversion um, to you know any kind of diplomatic agreement with Iran, even though the international community believes that it's complying. Um, and I think that raises some questions, too, about double standards, because not only do you have the vertical proliferation with countries like the United States modernizing their nuclear capabilities, but the United States has also been okay with plenty of other countries getting nuclear weapons, um, notably Israel, notably, you know, India, Pakistan, maybe not, but not to the same extent. Like We haven't thrown as much of a fit about Pakistan. And I think that segues very well um, into the next question, which is, um, do we think that the non-proliferation treaty is a product of power politics or a genuine commitment to a disarmament norm? And one of the reasons why I think this is important, because we were Nick and I were doing some research about this um, last night. Um, we actually read a couple articles that you had written uh, about this. And uh, one thing that's interesting is it seems like, you know, some would argue that nuclear weapon states see a benefit in the NPT because they're able to maintain their nuclear monopoly more easily. Whereas on the flip side, um, countries that are too poor to be able to pursue nuclear weapons or who are afraid of some sort of aggressive neighbor getting nuclear weapons uh, might commit to it just out of fear. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, you have some people who say it's more than that, that there's a norm that's been internalized, that there's this idea uh, that nuclear weapons are just unacceptable to have, um, you know, regardless of the political expedience. Um, so, Dr. Doyle, which do you think it is? Uh, is the NPT just a result of power politics? Are countries just doing it because it's convenient? They like their nuclear monopolies or keeping nuclear weapons out of the hands of certain countries? Um, or do you think there's a genuine norm that's been internalized and that some of these countries who have been throwing a fit over it are more the exception than the rule? Uh, I, I think similar to the question about optimism and pessimism, it depends on who you ask. Uh, so I, I think the, the question as to whether the disarmament norm 
has been internalized is can be measured by how many states have signed and are pushing for the 2017 Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So uh, let me give a little background on that so that my remarks will make some sense. Um, in around 2013-2014, uh, global civil society groups like the International Committee of the Red Cross, uh, some notable uh, world figures like the Archbishop, former Archbishop of South Africa, Desmond Tutu, uh, came out and said that the nuclear weapon states do not appear to have any intention to disarm at all. And this is actually a threat to human existence. And because it's a threat to human existence, if a war were ever to happen, either by design or by accident, then this would count as the gravest of war crimes ever. It would be a crime against humanity. And so they viewed this as the humanitarian imperative to abolish nuclear weapons. Now, I think that norm has been internalized by a majority of the world's countries. Not all, but by a majority. Of course, if disarmament is ever going to happen, it would have to be a norm that is at least respected, if not internalized, by the nuclear weapon states, right? Because you're not going to get nuclear disarmament in Latin America. It's already nuclear weapon free. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get nuclear disarmament in Africa. It's already nuclear weapon free. The question is, can you get nuclear weapons to be dismantled in an irreversible and verifiable way from the nine states that have them. Mm -hmm. uh, now, that's where there's a disagreement over the value of nuclear deterrence. Is it an intrinsic value or is it an instrumental value? Now, your remark has made it, uh, Preston, that uh, nuclear weapons are instruments, mm -hmm. right? So either nuclear disarmament is an instrumental value that should be accepted or should not be accepted because we've got an intrinsic value that we need to pay attention to, mm -hmm. which is war prevention and ultimately the survival of humanity. Mm -hmm. All right. I think most people in the disarmament community would agree that nuclear disarmament is an instrumental value but they think of it as an instrumental value that cannot be rejected. And why do they think that? It's because they don't trust the nuclear weapon states to ultimately manage nuclear weapons responsibly. Mm -hmm. They believe that human nature and other facets of international politics are going to conspire to bring tragedy to the world. And it's one thing if that tragedy is a function of conventional warfare. It's another thing if that tragedy is a function of nuclear warfare. Mm -hmm. So it is imperative for those that have internalized the disarmament norm that nuclear weapons are removed because we're not the kinds of creatures 
that can handle nuclear weapons responsibly. <laughs> yeah, and that's, and that's the interesting thing. How you know when it when it comes to comparing disarmament in in human nature, that when you look at it from a human nature perspective, the spectrum of optimists and pessimists is kind of flipped. That the people who are optimistic about our ability uh, to actually get rid of nuclear weapons, oftentimes are pessimistic about human nature. Um, and then the, the other way around, you know, a lot of times, you know, those who who kind of accept nuclear weapons as inevitable think that you know this might be something that we can you know trans send the problems of as we have with with other technologies so um one last actually two last questions this first one is going to be pretty quick and then the last one i, I think i want to zero back in um and uh, on the some of the the pragmatic realities like the courses of action that are on the table for the 2020 review conference um so you mentioned you know obviously the survival of humanity um so one of the things that um nick and i had uh, discussed was the question of um is it possible that nuclear weapons have a place in securing the common defense of humanity? And there's there's two threats that we're kind of uh, focusing on here. Um, the first is rogue actors um, who have nuclear weapons and don't um, care about norms. Um, so with that one, that's kind of like if you have, let's say, like a Fourth Reich or something, you know, someone who kind of acts like Nazi Germany. If there was a country that was like a clear and present um, enemy, you know, to the human race, and that everybody agreed on that, um, you know, do nuclear weapons have a, a, a purpose in securing against that? And then the second one, and this one, this is getting a little bit tinfoil hat, but this is a fun question. And for those of you who've watched other or listened to other podcasts of ours, um, you can hear this in more detail on our Space Warfare podcast that we did a while back. Um, but extraterrestrials, the thing that's interesting about nuclear weapons is as we've seen with different levels of technology between countries that they have the capability of leveling the playing field um, between advanced um, and less advanced actors. And this yeah. would be especially true, you know, if you're dealing with, <laughs> that's perfect. This would be especially true if you're dealing with, um, you know, uh, so not only you know extraterrestrials, but also like some of the, there's certain nuclear technologies that could be pursued that would make it exponentially easier for us to fight in space, including against more advanced adversaries. Such examples would be nuclear rockets, um, shaped charges, nuclear sure, shaped sure. charges to be able to penetrate insane amounts of armor. Um, so with that with that question out of the way, I, I wanted to throw that one in as a wild card. Um, do we think that that is is there a legitimate place for nuclear weapons and providing like a collective nuclear defense <laughs> for humanity or do, we, do you feel that the risks just outweigh the benefits and that perhaps this scenario, or either scenario at least, you know, is so unlikely that it's not really worth considering compared to the threat um, associated with proliferation? Excuse, excuse me, just to jump in, uh, for the listeners out there, uh, the doctor put his tin aluminum drink yes. on top of his head. <laughs> that was great. That was great. It was a great moment. Um, but then just to butt in, we have about five minutes left. Um, I have a friend that I made while I was at community college. He and I are bound by everything but blood. He's my brother, basically. He is from Sudan. His father is from Egypt, or his mother is from Egypt. Uh, I think he has family from Egypt. Um, you mentioned earlier South Sudan yeah. and the exception that they are. Actually, Carlos, if, if yeah, you don't yeah. mind, we don't have a lot of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I well, just let me finish my thought. Um, do you just, I'm going to have him listen to this and he graduated in the United States and then his visa expired. So now he's in Canada. But if you just had words for him real quick, uh, that's all, you know, I was going to have him listen and that was all I wanted to say. Okay. So I'll do, um, I'll close with three remarks then. One is that, uh, when Sudan experienced their civil, uh, uh when, when Sudan, experienced their problem with secession, right? Okay. And South Sudan seceded from Sudan proper. Okay. Uh, 
uh, I don't think it was even in the on the radar of the South Sudanese newly formed government to join the NPT because they had other pressing problems. And quite frankly, the, the, I don't see South Sudan's failure to join the NPT as a negative mark against South Sudan. They're preoccupied with other issues. And it, it's really a, a shame that South Sudan is experiencing the problems that it is. I know someone who works in the legislature really? in South Sudan, wow. and I'm wishing all of them the best as they try and figure out how to bring reconciliation uh, and, and resolution to their conflicts. Uh, now, on on the question of um, on the question of whether there's a role for collective nuclear deterrence in the world, I think that's been the assumption of the United States and its NATO partners and the United States and Japan and South Korea ever since these extended nuclear deterrence relationships were set up, that nuclear weapons have a role in collective defense, right? But uh, what would what would collective defense look like? See, I think a lot of our thinking about national or alliance defense is shaped by conventional historical examples. We've never seen nuclear weapons be used in defense. And it's not like we can shoot down incoming intercontinental nuclear tipped missiles. Our ability to have missile defense has not been adequately tested. And so it's just an article of faith to think that if any country commits nuclear aggression against the United States, that we'll be able to prevent it and roll it back, mm -hmm. right? No. Nuclear weapons coming into the United States, they're going to detonate. So nuclear retaliation, that's not defense. That's retaliation. We haven't prevented an attack. We've endured an attack. And now we're going to respond in kind. Now, if you do that in a limited way, it's catastrophic, but it's not a species-ending event. Mm -hmm. If the United States, Russia, and every other nuclear weapon state fires all of their arsenal at each other in some way, then we'll know whether the human race will survive. But from what I've been able to find out, it just takes 400 nuclear detonations to induce nuclear winter. And the United States has more than 6,000 nuclear weapons. And the Russians have more than 7,000 nuclear weapons. Yeah. And there's about 14,000 nuclear weapons in total in the world. And Ru Russia's are a lot bigger, too. I remember reading about some of that. So, so 400 out of 14,000 just isn't that much. Mm -hmm. We have overkill capacity. <laughs> yeah. Right? All right, now on the tinfoil hat question. Mm -hmm. uh, I think probably the best speculative answer to this is what we see in science fiction series like Star Trek. 
Right. I mean, so, but understand what that would have to, what would, what would our world have to be like in order to be a Star Trek-like world? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing is you would have a world government. Mm -hmm. So you would see the abolition of the state system as we currently understand it. We'd see the abolition of national sovereignty as we currently understand it. And we would see a world government that is now in relationship to other worlds in the same way that the United States is in relation to Russia. Mm -hmm. So now it's a universal anarchy and not just international anarchy. And then if you get anything like a United Federation of Planets going, then you're talking about uh, a UN kind of organization, but probably with stronger hierarchical uh, features. And this is nothing that many, I mean, I think most Americans, uh, you know, are opposed to world government on principle, <clears throat> right? So is there a role for nuclear weapons against space invaders? Only if we surrender national sovereignty. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's interesting because it goes back to a point that you brought up earlier about, um, you know, how what a lot of disarmament advocates will talk about is that maybe humanity is just not ready for nuclear weapons. But because it, it but it seems like that under this system that maybe a one world government is what we would need um, to be ready. So um, with that being said, um, th there were a couple other things we wanted to discuss, but we are running out of time. And I know Dr. Doyle, you had said uh, that you had somewhere else to be. Uh, but that being said, it was a great discussion. I think it was very enlightening for everybody in involved. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. I definitely learned a lot from everybody here um, in this discussion, especially you, Dr. Doyle. Wonderful and very insightful remarks as always. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope everyone enjoyed this podcast and y'all take care to wisdom, virtue, and victory. Mm.